This is Archive Atlanta, episode 111, Cotton States and International Exposition. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. This week we're talking about the 1895 Cotton States and International Exposition. Opened for over 100 days from September through December of that year, it would attract around 800,000 visitors from across the U.S. and 13 different countries. Way back in episode 83, I talked about Atlanta's 1881 exposition, and I promised to be back with the history of the 1887 and the 1895 expositions. And so here we are, a promise partially fulfilled. I didn't feel like the 1887 Piedmont Exposition was going to carry its own episode, but it's important history to share. And so first, I'm going to tell you why that event mattered, how it influenced Piedmont Park that we know and love today, and then we're going to move on to the 1895 Exposition. The Piedmont Exposition was a regional event put on to exhibit the natural resources of the Piedmont region, which of course is Georgia, but is also North and South Carolina, Tennessee, and Alabama. In early 1887, the Superior Court granted a charter to the Piedmont Exposition Company, led by Charles A. Collier, and then he appointed several men um, on the committee, names with Grady, English, Inman, and Adair, you know, all the big guns. Once President Cleveland agreed to visit, the gloves came off, and the search for suitable land was the most important task. The association meets to decide, and everybody wants the Collier land, but he will not agree to give it over. So the Walker land is chosen. And if you listen to episode 17 about Piedmont Park, you'll know that the land that is the park today was owned by the Walker family post-Native American removal. So this is how and why we get the name Piedmont Park, because of the Piedmont Exposition. The group hires distinguished landscape designer Joseph Forsyth Johnson to develop the plan, and architect G.L. Norman, who worked on the 1881 fair, to design the main buildings. The land was cleared with convict labor. I have a whole episode about Chattahoochee Brick and one entirely about Black women in the convict labor system, but this is really important for everyone to understand how layered and nuanced this history is just of Piedmont Park alone. The Piedmont Exposition also saw the destruction of Tight Squeeze, which was a slum in current-day Midtown along what is now Crescent Street. With 20,000 visitors on opening day and 50,000 when President Grover Cleveland visited, city leaders considered the event a success. Between 1881 and 1907, six southern cities hosted seven international expositions. They were a great way to bring business, visitors, and press to your city, something that Atlanta desperately desired. In 1893, Chicago would host the World's Columbian Exposition, the largest and most successful World's Fair held in the U.S., and this 100% inspired Atlanta's plan to hold its own international fair. And there was a feeling that this event in Chicago shortchanged the South, you know, didn't highlight it the way it should have been. And while there was no expectation that Atlanta's fair would come close to Chicago, I mean, everybody knew that wasn't going to happen, there was inspiration that it was going to boost the Southern economy. But 1893 was also the year of an economic depression, and so city leaders felt that the solution was to increase foreign trade. And the main objective of the Cotton States and International Exposition was to, quote, cultivate closer relations with South, Central, and Latin American republics, end quote, and to promote Southern textile manufacturing and make products that could be sold in South and Central American markets. But locally, putting on an exposition of this size also creates jobs. I mean, we do this even now, you know, like, let's build something. So the fact that there was unemployed people all across the city would give them something to do to make this fair a success. 
The first working name for the fair was the Cotton States and Subtropical Exposition, which was short-lived, thank God, and then changed to the Cotton States and Pan-American Exposition, and finally, the Cotton States and International. Thoughts were that the Port of New York dominated trade and very little went below Baltimore. And southern ports should ship southern goods. So the papers put out this map and there was lines drawn between Nassau, Bahamas and Des Moines, Iowa. There was a line from Havana to Chicago, one from Mexico City to New York City. But in the middle, Atlanta was this main central point. All the lines went through it or to it. The first step of having an exposition was to charter a company. And it's important to point out that this event was not a city-run project. This was a stockholder company funded by the investors and then through selling bonds. And there was a lot of financial difficulties with this event, and they put a lot of their own personal money into this. The city of Atlanta contributed $75,000. They promised fire and police protection and water supply. And Fulton County gave $75,000 along with numerous new rail lines that would get the passengers to the expo. Once the U.S. government approved the fair and agreed to have a building there, they contributed 200000 and then other states lined up to participate and fund. There was commissioners appointed to each Central and South American country, and that person's job was to garner participation and then have them organize the exhibit. Including African Americans in the Cotton States and International Expo could honestly be its own episode. But for local Atlanta ministers, mainly Henry McNeil Turner and E.R. Carter, they pushed for black participation in the fair. And white city leaders were fairly receptive to it. So there was a lot of things they had to do. They actually had to travel to D.C., um, pledge their case before Congress. And then once Congress approved it, it came with a specification that there would be a requirement for a separate Negro exhibition building. And then there would be an African-American commissioner. So the person responsible for those exhibits, that person would be Irving Garland Penn. He was from D.C. In July of 1894, ground broke in the future Piedmont Park. Led by Chief of Construction and Landscape Engineer Grant Wilkins, the difficult physical labor was done by imprisoned men on chain gangs, being used for free by the exposition company. And this saved them to over $100,000 in costs. This is also the time that Lake Clara Mere was created, expanded from a small pond from the Piedmont Expo. And it's also when Atlanta renamed all of its streets along the park. Now, renaming streets in Atlanta is nothing new. I would bet that maybe 10% of Atlanta streets have their original names. But today, Midtown is known for its numbered streets. But all of that came because of this exposition. 14th Street used to be called Wilson Avenue. Um, and then anything below that was all changed to numbers. So the, the thought was that, you know, you have this influx of tens of thousands of visitors coming to the city, and the easiest way for them to understand where they are is to give them a numbered street. In 1895, Atlanta had 75,000 people living in the city. 40% of them were African American. There was 125 miles of electric trolley lines, and you could feel the energy in these newspaper articles coming up to the exposition. So, I mean, starting in February and March and the expo was supposed to happen in September, there was just a frenetic energy. And that energy was good and bad. While the majority of the city, the white majority, was excited about, you know, new visitors, minority communities were working through their concerns. For Black leaders, a meeting at Big Bethel occurred to discuss objections about the Negro building, the use of convict labor, the fact that streetcars were legally segregated, so how are you supposed to even get to the fairgrounds? Um, there was a newspaper um, publisher, I think I talked about in the African-American newspapers episode, but he wrote like a scathing thing like, you know, go to the fair if you want to be treated like a second-class citizen. 
If you listen to episode 82, you'll know that the small Chinese community in Atlanta was concerned over the importation of 206 Chinese workers um, into Atlanta to finish the exhibit. But more specifically, 34 Chinese women who range from ages 16 to 24. It was super rare for Atlanta to have Chinese women. There was only one woman in Augusta. Savannah had one, I think, and Atlanta had zero. And the reasons for this I talked about in that episode, very long and complicated, but it started in 1875 with the Page Act, which explicitly banned immigration of Chinese women to America. So Lumling, who was a prominent member of the community here, was extremely concerned that these women would be sold after the exposition since there was wealthy U.S. Chinese merchants that would reportedly pay $1,000 for a wife. I go into way more detail in that episode, but local men took it upon themselves to guard the Chinese village at the exposition, and they witnessed these women being smuggled out in the middle of the night. The weeks leading up to the opening day were frantic. The city realized it did not have enough hotel space. They sent a canvasser door to door to take stock of private homes that were willing to rent out their rooms. And the expo wasn't really even done yet. And it wouldn't really be done for 10 days after opening. The city actually did a lot of damage control in the press when the reports came back that the state of the grounds in the first week were just not good. Wednesday, September 18th was official opening day, and President Cleveland, who at the last minute said he couldn't make the trip to Atlanta, pushed a button from his summer home in Massachusetts, which ceremoniously turned on the electricity and set the fair in motion. A huge parade filled the streets of Atlanta as the procession led to the exposition grounds. This was led by military troops, and in the back were the second colored battalion, who we just talked about a few weeks ago. After paying your 50 cents admission through the main gate at 14th Street, visitors were free to wander the expansive fairgrounds or use their guidebooks to find a specific building. For those that entered the U.S. government building, they were horrified by the sight of all of the aquarium fish dead in their tanks. Apparently there was a water source that had been turned off accidentally overnight or something. No one realized until that morning that every single fish in those tanks was dead. The arts building was sparsely populated, and the reason determined was that rules required you to check in your cane or walking stick or umbrella, but unlike other expositions, you had to pay five cents to do so. So expo leaders had to plead with the commissioners of the arts building to change their policies. There was a Southern Railroad exhibit, a tintype gallery, the California building, which was so packed with oranges that the aroma of oranges just wafted through the fairgrounds. There was a scenic railway, a battle-scarred cabin rescued from a battlefield in North Georgia. Um, there was exhibits on Costa Rica, Mexico, San Salvador. There were refreshments at Atlanta Brewing. And there was the Pennsylvania building that held the actual Liberty Bell, which has its own dramatic story. Uh, Philadelphia did not want to send it here, and Atlanta leaves leaders lost their minds about it. So it ended up coming after a lot of back and forth, but it was guarded by four Philadelphia policemen that traveled with it. Opening day was also the day of Booker T. Washington's infamous speech. He was the only black man on stage, chosen by Irving Garland Penn, and historians would later call this the Atlanta Compromise. But it was where Washington extolled the values of black Americans foregoing political and social equality and focusing on industrial education and economic advancement. The often cited line, quote, in all things social, we can be as separate as the fingers, yet one is the hand in all things essential to mutual progress, end quote. I'm not going into the analysis of this. There are hundreds of papers and books about it. Um, but just the following year, the Supreme Court upholds legal segregation in Plessy versus Ferguson. So this 
Mesopotamia had a lot of impact on history. But this does let us get into a larger conversation about race at the fair. There is a great book literally titled Race at the Exposition. I'll link it in the show notes. But for white Southerners, this was a place where they could feel good about black men's progress. You know, see, oh, they have their own exhibition building. They have their own speaker. While also visiting exhibits like the old plantation on the Midway, complete with a mammy figure. If you've ever seen historical photos of the exposition, the entire Piedmont Park space was dotted with grand, impressive buildings, statues, columns. It's beautiful. I will post photos um, and a map on social media, but also link. There is a good book that is full of pictures of it as well. The main architect was Bradford Gilbert. He designed every building except the women's building, which was done by a woman out of Pittsburgh the Fine Arts Building, which was done by local architect Walter T. Downing, and the U.S. government building, which was designed by a federal architect. There were separate buildings for administration, an auditorium, agricultural, electricity, fire, fine arts, women, manufacturers and liberal arts, machinery, Georgia manufacturers, transportation, minerals and forestry, U.S. government, and the Negro building. The number one question people always ask me is like, what happened to these buildings? Why didn't we save them? And the answer is they were not meant to be permanent. The most important buildings were built with pine, Some of them were on masonry foundations, but even those were slapped together quickly. So there were some older structures left from the 1887 Expo. So actually, the Negro building was constructed with materials that were taken from another building. But the idea was that these were either disassembled quickly right after, maybe they're going to be moved, they were just not permanent. What we do have left around Piedmont Park is the stone stairways to said buildings, along with the giant urns. All of that stone was quarried on site. And these remnants give us a small glimpse as to which buildings were where and in which spot. So, you know, you can kind of stand, at least stand in the center of the active oval. If you look up at those stairs, you can squint your eyes and just imagine some of those buildings there. The Midway was along what is today 10th Street, and it had a mystic maze, a Moorish palace, Little World, Haunted Swing, Animal Arena, German Village, Beauty Show, Chinese Village, Living Pictures, Indian Village, Ostrich Farm, Monkey Paradise, an Inuit Village, more I'm forgetting. Oh, it's where the old plantation was as well. So if you're listening closely, I just described a place that sounds like a Coney Island boardwalk on crack with rides and amusements mixed with exotic animals. And that's where they placed Japanese people, Chinese, Germans, Egyptians, Mexicans, Native Americans. It was very much playing on the nativist and racist views of the time. All of these broader issues would come to a head four years later when America enters the Spanish-American War. The exposition had themed days during those four months, things like Wheelman's Day, which I talked about in the bicycling episode. They had President's Day when Grover Cleveland finally came to visit in late October. There was an Atlanta Day held sometime near Thanksgiving when the entire city was ordered to shut down and allow all visits to the exposition. There was a Cody's Wild West show run by the Buffalo Bill featuring sharpshooter Annie Oakley. But I learned a funny fact that because of the rain and a well-written contract, he only performed for less than a week before packing up and leaving Atlanta when the rain came in late October. His area is over what we call the meadow today. And so just a month later, that meadow was used for the UGA versus Auburn game where Auburn won. 
The fair was also where visitors paid 25 cents to see one of the first motion pictures. A duo named Jenkins and Armat did show their inventions at the 1893 Chicago Fair, but Atlanta was technically the first paid showing of a movie. They paid about $500 for a booth at the east end of the Midway, and they had two screening rooms built with a projector booth in both of them. So the idea was that um, one projector would be used in each room and then a 15-minute intermission, and then um, customers can kind of exit one room and enter into the other. Sadly, there was a fire in the Midway, and it um, destroyed all of their equipment. After the exposition closed on December 31st, 1895, there was talk about the fairgrounds being turned into an industrial cotton mill, but those plans were shelved. In 1904, the city purchased land for about $100,000 to create a public park space, the Piedmont Park that we have today. At the same time, the Atlanta city limits expanded all the way to 15th Street. So there you have it, the story of the 1895 Cotton States and International Exposition. Thank you everyone for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating or a review. I am so close to 200 ratings on Apple Podcasts. I think I have four more to go. And I would love to reach that milestone. You can also visit the Patreon link in the show notes to support the podcast. I hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll see you next week.